Uh, I've been looking forward to this message for a long time, and you can hear my voice is kind of going a little bit, so you can pray for me because I don't want to run out of gas before I run out of notes. So um, we've been talking, as, as we've walked through Job, one of the major uh, theologies that we see in the book of Job, and it's one of the themes of the book, not as a, a good thing to follow, but actually as a critique, um, is this thing called retributive theology. And maybe you're new, maybe you haven't been here uh, in a while, just to remind you what that, that big $100 fancy theological word means. Uh, retributive theology basically says when we do what is right, God blesses us, and when we do what is wrong, God punishes us. And so we can look out at the world and we can see people that are that are uh, being, uh, that are suffering, that are uh, going through affliction, and in retributive theology, would say those people obviously are doing something wrong because God is punishing them. And then we would look out the other window, and we'd see some people that are prospering, that are being blessed, and we would say, well, they must be doing some things right because God is obviously blessing their life. That was the theology of the three friends in Job. It was also the theology of Elihu, the fourth friend, who had some things right, but in that regard, uh, he didn't get it right. And uh, what we've been doing in this time, <laughs> let's see, okay, I got batteries. Is that receiver plugged in there, Matthias? Can you advance the slide for me? We'll do it the old-fashioned old way, slide please, you know, we'll kind of do that. The old-fashioned way isn't working. <laughs> Is it frozen up? Okay, can you take care of that? I'm just going to keep introing, okay? All right. So what, what would normally be up here is this idea of retributive theology. And um, you know what? You don't need a computer when you have a pen and a whiteboard. So um, what we want to do in, in uh, this hour is finish up our little mini-series on retributive theology. Why is that a wrong doctrine? Uh, or maybe said a better way, um, retributive theology only looks at half of what the Scripture reveals. And uh, so what we saw... Okay, all right, great. Thank you. Um, th there's the summary, as I mentioned. Uh, we did see that people do reap what they sow in the spiritual life and natural consequences. This is all review. Um, and divine consequences. That is true. The Bible does say you reap what you sow. But again, that, that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. And, and as I said, there, there are really four pieces of the puzzle that you have to have in order to properly understand uh, why God does what he does and, and how things go. And uh, I like to demonstrate, ooh and ah you with my uh, puzzle graphic again here. Okay, I kind of think of it like a puzzle. And, and remember, the friends have taken this little part of suffering, that the fact that we suffer um, because sometimes we do what is wrong and God punishes us, they take that little piece of the puzzle and they make that their whole theology. And that's the only tool they have in the toolbox for understanding why things happen in the world. But the reality is the Bible gives a much more comprehensive picture. Uh, and again, just by way of review and suffering, uh, we saw that there's a whole bunch of reasons that people suffer. Uh, some of us suffer because our clickers aren't working this morning. Um, okay, and, and the bottom line on this comprehensive understanding of suffering, and again, this is just review, is that not all suffering is the result of personal sin or divine discipline. And, and again, we need to be very, very careful when we start ministering to people that are suffering, when we start implying or inferring or even admonishing people that maybe there's some sin in their life when we don't know 
the reasons behind the suffering. Now, footnote on that. Is it always good when something happens to say, how's my heart, right? Am I responding rightly? Am I sinning? Is there some area of my life that I'm sinning in that I'm ignoring? That's always a good question to ask. But we don't want to go around pointing a finger saying that all suffering is the result of personal sin. Uh, Suffering is much more comprehensive in terms of why it happens according to Scripture. And then last time we talked about two other pieces, the issue of time and eternity. And um, in that regard, the point I was trying to make is that God does not always bring final justice in every situation in this life. Uh, He will bring final justice, but he will bring final justice on judgment day. So sometimes we look out and we say with Job, do you see those orphans out there? Do you see those widows out there? They're suffering. They're suffering. Why are they suffering? That seems so unjust. Well, the reality is God has not promised final justice in this life. Final justice comes on judgment day. And and just as an extension of that, it's not our role to run around executing God's final justice. We do have a role in upholding justice in our culture and in our government and in our world, um, but we are never to take God's role in that. The third piece of the puzzle that we looked at, <laughs> there it is, click, click, there it is, are the declarations and promises and covenants of God. Um, what are we saying here? We're saying that suffering in some contexts is guided by God's divine declarations and promises. Uh, We mentioned the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. God told Abraham, I will bless everybody who blesses you, and to the one who curses you, I will curse. So there is potential suffering going on in the world connected to that covenant. Some people are suffering because they are violating uh, the implications of the Abrahamic covenant by cursing the people of God, and thus they're bringing consequences upon themselves. And and you see that in... in, um, in, in non-Jewish context too. I mean, think about, um, remember we talked about Pharaoh in Exodus 4? God tells him from the beginning, if you mess with Israel, my firstborn, I'll take your firstborn. I, I will kill your firstborn if you persecute my firstborn. Okay? And he tells him that. That's the first thing that Moses tells Pharaoh when he comes back from the desert. And then we've got one plague, two plagues, all those plagues, right? And Pharaoh hardens his heart and he, he says no, he's not going to let the people go. What's the last plague? He kills Pharaoh's firstborn, okay? In accordance with the declaration of God to Pharaoh from the beginning of that whole event. So some suffering, the suffering in Pharaoh's life was a direct consequence of him violating the declaration of God. And so sometimes suffering happens because we're violating the declarations and promises and covenants of God. In the beginning, you know, that's why there's toil and tribulation and a running down of creation. We're, we're suffering because of the curse related to the fall and the sin. Okay, but there's one last piece of the puzzle. It's the character of God. And this is my favorite part. This is, this is, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. What is the book of Job about? It's about the character of God. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay? All of you should be saying that. Keith, it's about the character of God. We've been doing this all year. Okay? This should be a mantra by now. It's about the character of God. Yes, it's about suffering. Yes, it's about retributive theology. Yes, it's about justice. But all of those things, I don't have the graphic here, but remember, all of those issues, those three themes, all point to God himself. And in some way, the book of Job and those three themes is trying to correct 
faulty views of who God is. And by the end of the book, we have a more accurate view of what we call theology proper, the character of God. Okay, And that's what this is really about. And that's why this is the most important part of the puzzle. Okay, Now let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, would you take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32? And let's uh, jump in with both feet here because uh, this is going to be a run through the Bible tour. Deuteronomy chapter 32. <clears throat> and let's look at some verses together. This is actually, um, I was just telling my kids this the other night. You, you remember Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon before he dies. Remember, he goes up on the hill, he looks over the river, he sees the promised land, he's not allowed to go in it because of his disobedience, and he dies. So right before he goes up on the mountain, looks over the river into the promised land, he gives this speech, this long, drawn-out series of sermons that we call the book of Deuteronomy. And so he's sort of bringing that sermon to a close, and at the end of Deuteronomy, we find what's called the Song of Moses. Listen, right at the beginning of this song, listen to what Moses ascribes to God. Verse 4 of chapter 32, Deuteronomy. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Isn't that good? Let me tell you what Moses did. He got out his ancient Near Eastern thesaurus and he looked up justice, okay? And he looked for the synonyms. And then he wrote them all down. Just, faithful, without injustice, righteous, upright. He's trying to say in six different ways, God always does what is right. He's just, he's right. He never does what is wrong. You say, well, why is that? Because God, as God, defines what is right and wrong, right? He, he, it's not like God says, okay, well, there's this standard of right and wrong, and I just always abide by that. No, he is the standard. He is the law. He is what is the definition of right and wrong. And Moses, as he closes out his sermon, goes out of his way to tell the people of Israel, God is right. He's just. He never does anything that is wrong. So when we think about this whole retributive theology, we affirm God always does what is just and right. Okay? He always does what is just and right. And, and I think so far you guys would be with me on that. Okay? But watch this. He's also patient. He's patient. Turn to Exodus 34. Just back up a few pages and let's look at this together. Because sometimes when we think about God always doing what is right, we have this idea, well, that if it's right to punish a sinner, that's just what he's going to do right away. And if it's, if it's right to enact justice, uh, to, to let the innocent go and to punish the guilty, that there's going to be this sort of immediate cause and effect. Someone sins and he's punished. He sins and he's punished. That's what retributive theology says, right? Remember, it's vending machine theology. You put, you put the, the bad stuff in and you get a bad thing out. But that's, that's not how God often operates. Okay. Now, let me show you what that means here. Look at Exodus 34. Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, in, in the Old Testament 
Uh, and you remember the deal. Um, uh, they come down the mountain, right? Moses comes down the mountain. They made the golden calf. Moses gets angry. He throws the tablets down. God says, I'm not going with you in the promised land anymore. This is, this is enough, right? Moses intercedes for God and, and, and pleads with God to forgive the people and to continue on. And, and so God forgives the people. He gives them a chance to repent and he forgives the people. Um, and in the midst of Moses interceding for God, he says, Lord, will you please come along? These are your people. We need you to lead us. Because remember, God just said, well, you go to the promised land, you lead them. I'm not, I'm not leading them anymore. And Moses intercedes, and, and God says, yes, I will continue to lead the people in. And Moses, in the, in the excitement of that moment, he says, show me your glory. And it's like, oh, what did I just ask for, right? Because remember, just the previous chapter, God tells him, no one can see my glory and live, right? That's not a good thing. So he says, show me your glory in a moment of excitement. And God says, okay. And you're thinking, oh no, what did I get myself into? God says, I'm going to let all my goodness pass by before you. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go uh, carve some new tablets, right? And you're going to meet me early in the morning at this location that I'm going to tell you about. And I'm going to re-give you the law. I'm going to redo those ten tab- the, the, the ten words on the tablets. And, and here's the plan. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to put you behind this rock. You're going to be hiding behind this cleft in the rock, and then I'm going to pass by before you, okay? And I will declare to you my goodness. And what I'm going to do, so you don't die, Moses, is I'm going to put my hand over that little hole in the rock. And then at the last moment, just as God is exiting stage right, so to speak, God says, I'll remove my hand. And you will see literally the back of my kavod, the back of my glory, the, the afterglow of God's visual radiant splendor. And you're thinking, why isn't there a video here, man? Wouldn't that be great? Interestingly enough, and I don't want to get too far off the subject, but interestingly enough, as amazing as that event would have been, because no one else has ever seen that in all of history, Moses doesn't tell us one thing about what he sees. And you know what? That's helpful. Because to Moses, walking away from this event, the most amazing thing to him was not what he saw that literally no eye has ever seen. The most profound thing to him was what he heard. And that's what he records for us here. Look at Exodus chapter 34. As God descends to the mountain and that place that he had uh, set out for Moses. Chapter 34, verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. He stood there with Moses. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And then, verse 6, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time in the whole Bible that the special, unique name of God, Yahweh, is used back to back. The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, gracious. And let me, let, me, let me translate this next phrase for you literally, okay? Long-nosed. Remember this? Long-nosed. What? God has a long nose? And you remember, Hebrews have a wonderful way of doing this. And David, I know you, you love this stuff too. Yeah, he saw his back, so how did he see his nose? Well, God's telling him that. Um, when you get angry... Where do you see it first? In your face. Okay? Eyebrows come down, nose comes up, brown gets furrowed, right? And you get angry, maybe your face 
gets a little red. And when a Hebrew said, a person had a long nose, what he was trying to say was, it takes a long time for things to get to that person. It takes a long time for that person to get angry. It takes a long time for them to show anger in their face. And it, it was a metaphor. It's a euphemism for patience. That's how you talk about patience if you're a Hebrew. Now, so look back at the text there. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's patient. Okay, now what does that mean? What that means is, even though he always does what is right, he always does what is just, he's patient also. He is slow to execute that, just, that justice sometimes. He is slow to get angry and to judge. He's patient. Now you say, well, why, why is that so important? Well, let me show you two ways that that's very, very important. Turn to Romans chapter 2. I want to show you two applications of the patience of God that are very, very important in thinking about this whole retributive theology thing, okay? The first thing that I want you to see as you turn to Romans 2 is that God's patience means He will delay the punishment of unbelievers in order to display His patience and kindness. Now, now watch how this works. Uh, you remember Romans chapter 2? Uh, God has just lowered the boom on humanity in chapter 1. Everybody's sinful. Everybody's going down this spiral of sin as they turn away from their Creator to the creature. Um, verse 2 of chapter 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. There it is, right? The justice of God. The judgment of God rightly falls on those that continue in sin. Now look at verse 3. This is, this is where it gets interesting. Now, do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and you do the same thing yourself, that you're going to escape that judgment? Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a warning to being a hypocrite, right? That I would judge someone else for some sin in their life when I'm doing the same thing. And we're saying, oh, God's going to get you. God's going to judge you. And you're thinking, well, if you're doing the same thing, he's going to judge you too. Let's not kid yourself. Okay. Look at the next verse. Why do we do that? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his what? His patience, his long-suffering. Okay. Why? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now watch how this works. God's just, right? He always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. But He's also patient. And what that means is He will often delay His justice. He will be slow in bringing that final act of justice. Why? Why? Look at verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Watch how this works. God's just, right? And because He's just, what that means is there is wrath that is coming. Wrath is coming because we're all sinful, right? 
But there are three pillars in God's character. Here's me down here. There are three pillars in God's character that hold back his wrath temporarily. God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. Okay? Those attributes work with his justice and they hold back the wrath of God temporarily so it doesn't fall on me immediately. Now, why is that a very important thing? Why? Well, it does lead us to repentance. But even before that, if I'm born and I'm sinful and God's just and he's not patient... Keith's born, wrath, judgment, I'm punished right on the spot, right? I have no opportunity to repent. So, so what, so what Paul's trying to help us to see is, yes, wrath is coming. Yes, judgment is coming. God is just. That's the right thing to do. But he's also kind and forbearing and patient. And those uh, character attributes work together to hold back that wrath so that we have time to repent. And if God was not patient like that, None of us would have opportunity to repent. We would get immediate justice. And you know what the reality is? That's exactly what we deserve. His patience is an extension of his grace. It's undeserved. Now, what, what Kit said is also true. Not only does this give us time to repent, but as I come to understand my sin and I come to understand my hypocrisy that I do the same things in Romans 1 that I see other people doing and I'm hypocritical and I judge them and then I'm convicted about that and I say, yes, I'm a sinner too. And I look and I see God's kindness and His forbearance and His patience. I deserve wrath, but He's kind, He's forbearing, He's patient with me. And you know what that does? It draws me to repentance. It compels me to come to him in repentance and faith. Okay, So you see how this works? Is God just? Is God just? Yes. yes, he is. But he's also patient. And his patience means he will delay bringing about that final justice. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants us to repent. And he wants us, look, look back at the, at the deal there. Why do people not repent? Verse four, why? Cause they think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. People don't repent cause they don't consider the, the value of that gift and the weightiness and the riches that God would be patient with us and delay his wrath when what we really deserve is his instant punishment. Okay. Do you see that? You see how this gets played out? There, there's another way that this works out. And I think Jack mentioned this verse last time. Flip over to 2 Peter. Not, not only does God delay his punishment of unbelievers in order to display his patience and kindness. And, and, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter. I, I forgot to, to mention something. Go ahead and turn to 2 Peter. I want to read one more thing in Romans for you before we go there. I didn't read far enough. So turn to 2 Peter. Go ahead and get there. And let me read you the end of Romans 2, okay? Yeah. 
Yeah, Romans 4, I guess I did read it, I just didn't bring it out. When he talks about thinking lightly of the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, what he's saying is God does that. God delays his punishment in order to display who he is. That, that's supposed to be a reminder that he is a patient God, that he is a kind God. Uh, he, he's not just dispensing justice, but it displays that for us. Look at Second Peter. This is another application of God's patience. Look at verse 8 of Second Peter chapter 3. But do, you not, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay, And what that's saying is, is that God sees time outside of it. Um, God, God doesn't experience time and, and, and understand it the same way we do. Um, he kind of sees time as a, a spectator, so to speak. And that's kind of hard to understand, especially on a Sunday morning, and we haven't had enough coffee yet. But, but it's true. Now, now listen to the application. The Lord is not slow. What? I thought we just said he is. He's, he's, he's patient. He delays his wrath, okay? Well, let's finish the verse. The Lord is not slow about his promise, okay? Meaning, meaning God is not dragging his feet against his will in some way, okay? God does not drag his feet. He is exactly on schedule. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. So what he's saying is this isn't plan B, This isn't God being reluctant. This isn't God dragging his feet. This is God saying, this has always been my plan. It has always been my plan to be patient with people. Okay, But sometimes we look out there and we say, well, God's dragging his feet. Peter says, no, he's not dragging his feet. He's not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. There it is again. He delays his justice. He delays his wrath to show us patience. Why? Verse 9, because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you see how he connects his patience with his grace there? His grace is that undeserved favor. And his patience says, I'm going to delay my wrath as long as possible because I want everybody to come to repentance. Okay. Do you see that? So, so, do you see the problem with saying God is just just and he's right and that's all there is to it? That's true. But he's also patient. And his patience takes his justice and dispenses it according to his wisdom and his grace. Does that make sense? He, he, he cha- channel, I hate, I hate the word channel. He, he's, he's bringing his, his justice through the means and through the circuit of his patience that is guided by his wisdom and his grace and his mercy. Okay. You see that? You see how this isn't a little more complicated at first glance. But but that is is that not good news? You have some family that don't know the Lord? Are we thankful that God is patient, giving them time to repent? You know, are we are, can we just be thankful for a minute that for years and years and years and years many of us rejected the Lord? We knew the truth, some of us and we rejected him, and if he was just a justice machine, we would have no hope. But he's not a justice machine. He's patient, and he's kind, and he's merciful. And those things take his justice and dispense it 
according to his grace. Let's look at another one here. He's also kind. He's kind. Uh, look back at, um, well, we saw it in Romans 2. Let's go over to Luke 6. Chapter 6, verse 35. This is right uh, in the beginning of Christ's ministry. And um, and uh, he's just come off the Sermon on the Mount. He's He's been healing people. He's been making the sick better. He's been casting out demons. Uh, and he's in this little discussion here. Um it parallels in some regard the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, my understanding of it was, is it's actually a separate sermon that has similar uh, characteristics to it. Um, listen to verse 35 of Luke 6, okay? But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, now listen, listen to this, okay? For he himself, it's emphatic in the Greek, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's our God. He is kind. He is compassionate to an evil and ungrateful people. Verse 36, so be merciful just as your father is merciful. He's saying, if that's what God is like, if God is kind and compassionate and merciful to an evil, ungrateful people, then we should be also. But what does that mean when we think about God himself? It means he feels for his people. He empathizes. He understands. He shows compassion to people. He's a person, not a justice machine. Okay? You see that? He doesn't just... He's not the vending. He's not just dispensing justice here and there. He is a kind, gracious, wise, patient person. And again, his justice, his righteousness flows through his kindness. Okay? Let me show you another one. He's gracious. He gives people good things that they don't deserve. He gives good things to people that they don't deserve. Look at Matthew chapter 5. You're in Luke. Just back up to Matthew, a few pages, to Matthew 5. And as we talk about God's grace and mercy here, I want to distinguish two uh, two realms of God's grace and mercy, okay? We're going to talk about what I would call His daily or temporal grace and mercy and what I'm going to call His final or eternal grace and mercy, okay? And I think that will be helpful for you in thinking about what we're going to talk about here, okay? Let's think about, first of all, His daily or temporal grace and mercy. Those are the daily graces that He gives to believers and unbelievers alike. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Uh, He says, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, It's very similar to the verse we just looked at. Verse 45, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the righteous. What's that saying? What's that saying? What's that? We're all in this together in the, in the sense of that we all experience what? 
We all experience His grace, His blessings. See, just understanding God's justice does not mean God isn't gracious. You say, wait a minute, if He always does what is right and never does what is wrong, you're telling me He's going to give undeserved things to people that don't deserve them? Uh-huh. And He does it in that temper. Think of, think of how many common graces you've enjoyed just today. Think of how many common graces that you've enjoyed today that have nothing to do, in a sense, with your salvation. Okay? You're breathing. Well, that's a good thing, right? You had food on the table. That's great. You know, you were able to come to worship in a country that's not going to persecute you. Not every Christian this morning is going to experience that. There are these common graces, right? And there, there are, how many people in Hood County? 25,000 people or something like that? All of them are, what's that? Oh, that much? Okay. I'm thinking city then. Um, all of them are experiencing, all of them are experiencing God's common graces this morning, whether they're believers or unbelievers. But there's also what we might call a final extension of his grace and those are eternal that's that's god's eternal grace given only to believers which ensures their salvation you guys know ephesians 2 8 can we just recite that for by grace you have been saved what grace is that is that that common grace that kind of just you know you kind of gives to everybody no that is specific intentional believer only grace you ready for this that ensures our salvation is secure it is only by grace. Okay? So God's right. He's just. He always does what is right. He always does what is wrong. But he gives things that we don't deserve every day. And for those of us that turn to him in repentance and faith, he gives us an eternal grace that ensures we will never be punished for our sins. And we will certainly go to be with him in heaven. We say, wow, that's pretty amazing. But not only that, kind of the, the, what always goes, the, the flip side of the coin with grace is his mercy. What does mercy mean? Now, now here's, this kind of goes back to his patience a little bit. Watch this. He withholds or tempers consequences or punishments which people deserve. That's what mercy means. He withholds or he tempers consequences or punishment that people deserve. And again, there are those daily temporal mercies. This, is this not a daily gift of his mercy? Isn't it? That he holds back his wrath every day. That he, he holds back his judgment. He holds back his punishment. Those are given to believers and unbelievers alike so that they will have time to repent. Think of how many... <laughs> you ever wonder what life would be like if God just removed all of his grace and mercy? I don't think we'd recognize the world. Um, we had a, a fish emergency in our house this morning. And I won't get into the specifics on that, but we were doing a major emergency water change this morning. Um, and I was thinking about this because Brian yesterday and one of the things had a, had a little um, cartoon of two fish in the bowl. You know, uh, obviously a husband and wife fish, you could tell by how they were drawing it. And it said, you know, tell me, Louise, have you been seeing somebody else? You know, in the two fish in the fishbowl, there's nobody else there. So it was kind of funny. But it made me think. Um, I'll, I'll borrow that from him and show you. It's much better to look at it. You know, fish don't know what it's like to not be wet. Right? Because they're in water all the time. Not in water, they die. 
When I think about grace and mercy, that's what I think about. We're always in it. It's always around us. We, 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 don't, we don't have a category for no grace and mercy because he just shows us grace and mercy every day. And like a fish, if you were to remove it, you'd die instantly. And he has those, those daily... We, we, will, we will never be able to imagine until we get to heaven how much grace and mercy God shows us every day. We don't even realize it. We call it normal life. But not only that, not only is there those daily temporal mercies, there is also what we're going to call a final mercy. And that is that eternal grace, that eternal mercy given only to believers, which ensures that they will never be condemned, never be judged, never be punished for their sins. What does Romans 8 say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Listen to John 5. It's a good one of verse, but we're going to look at it anyway. John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now listen, listen. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Can you just take a minute and think about some of the things you've done in your life that you aren't proud of? The the sins of your youth, the sins of your middle age, your sins of this week. What this is saying is that we're never going to be punished for that eternally. That is the promise of his final mercy. Now let me ask you a question that's very, very important. How can a God who says, I am just, I am righteous, I always do what is right, I never do what is wrong, I never do anything unjust, how can a God who says that let us off the hook eternally? How can he, I'll put it up here for you, okay? How can God be righteous and gracious? How can he be holy and forgiving? How can he be just and the justifier? Turn to Romans. I gave you a clue with that last one. (laughs) Guys, these attributes of God do not connect together. They do not make sense. You cannot have a God who is just and right and holy and merciful and grace and kind. Those don't fit together without this verse. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. But being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, through the work which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. What that means is Jesus took all that wrath for us. 
He absorbs all that wrath for us. See, his kindness, forbearance, his patience holds that back, giving me time to repent. When I repent, God removes that wrath because he pours it out on his son. That's propitiation. In propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. There it is. Grace and mercy and a demonstration of his righteousness. God had to punish his son because he's righteous. And he wanted to be gracious to us. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That doesn't mean he ignored them. That's talking about his patience again. Verse 26 for the demonstration of, I say, of his righteousness. There's that word again. It's righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. You have to have the cross to make this whole thing work. You have to have the cross of Jesus Christ to have a righteous and holy God who is also gracious and merciful, kind and patient. Those don't fit together unless you have the missing piece, which is the cross. Look back at verse uh, 26 there. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, here's God's righteousness displayed, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? If God let sinners off the hook without the cross, he would be unjust. Right? If God was just without being merciful and gracious and patient, then none of us would have any hope. But see, the cross connects those two. It allows God to be just and the justifier. He pours out his mercy and grace on sinners that don't deserve it because he's punishing his son instead of us. What am I trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. You've got to have the cross. The work of Christ is the mysterious union, listen to this, okay, of God's justice and his grace because he sacrifices himself in order to satisfy his own righteous demands. Do you get it? Do you see? God sacrifices himself in order to satisfy his own righteous demands. Let me say it a lot more plainly than this. Exodus 34, where God says... Yahweh, Yahweh, the, uh, I'm compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. I, bound, I abound in loving kindness and truth. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. But I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And we say, what? He's going to forgive everybody, but he has to punish the guilty? How do you make sense of that? You can't unless you have the cross. You can't unless Jesus comes. Exodus 34 is like, this doesn't make sense until a Savior arrives who links together the justice and mercy of God. Can I, can I go one more step with you? Are you tracking with Are you with me? If that's true, then the sacrificial work of Christ 
is an intrinsic part of the character of God. Do you see that? The cross is, is, the, is an intrinsic part of who God is. The cross is not some afterthought. It's not plan B. It's not something that just he came up with down the road. It's an intrinsic part of who God is. That's how he can be just and the justifier. That's how he can be righteous and holy and, and, and good and merciful and gracious and kind to sinners who do not deserve it. And that's why, as we wrestle with Job, Job is just one more book in the Bible that says, Pointer, we need a Savior. You need the cross to understand it. Now, you've got to understand the character of God to understand suffering. You've got to understand the character of God to understand how God can be just and the justifier. You've got to understand the character of God to understand God, period. And you cannot understand the character of God without understanding the gospel. Okay? That's what I'm trying to say. Let's pray.